This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Recently, I was at Hillsdale College, where I teach two weeks a year to the fantastic students there, and I came across a young woman who had had a story to tell but it wasn't her own. It was her mother's. Emily Barnum's brother, Braden, committed suicide in 2013. Today, Emily and her mom, Jill, bring us a story of recovery and reconciliation. Here's Emily. My mom sits next to me on the couch and with her eyes squeezed tightly shut, recites the following prayer from memory. Be thou triune God, in our midst, as we give thanks for those who are gone from earthly eyes. For they in thy nearer presence continue to worship you in the mystery that is one family in heaven and on earth. If it be thy holy will, please tell them how much we love them, how much we miss them, how much we long to see them again. Strengthen us to go on in loving service of all thy children. Thus we will have closer communion with thee and with thee, our loved ones. Thus we will come to know that there is no death, only a veil divides, thin as gossamer. This is my mom's response to the question, how did you get to where you are now? This prayer has provided her a personal theology of grief, a kind of map for the devastation of the loss of her son to suicide. Her 20-year-old son, Braden Barnum, died in a violent high-speed car crash in October 2013. Jill Barnum was in her mid-40s, a wife, mother of three, and part-time nurse. She was at the hospital working an evening shift in the immediate care when she received the news of her son's death. How does someone even begin to recover from this kind of loss? I look at my mom six years later and see a hopeful, even joyful individual, busy leading yoga classes and facilitating writing workshops, crafting her own sometimes hilarious and sometimes tear-inciting poems. The most amazing quality I see in my mom is her ability to forgive. But this ability to forgive is something that has had to be intentionally cultivated. It's been a process, a long, challenging, messy, but very inspiring process. Really on every level, it has been a pilgrimage, one that is very much still ongoing. In the first months after Bray's death, mom recounts developing very difficult emotions. Right after Bray died, we um, were just going through the motions, getting by. Then about four months later, we went on a family vacation. And it was a vacation of four of us instead of a family of five. And I believe that's when when the uh, permanence of Bray's decision started to set in. And that's when I started to really feel sad and then quickly very angry. My mom was raised in an intense conservative religious setting. 
And she sees this as one of the contributing factors to feeling an immense amount of pressure to be a perfect person, a perfect mom. So I never deluded myself. I never thought I was a perfect person, perfect mom, or that we were perfect parents. But we worked hard to raise our kids to be good Christians. In fact, I wanted my kids to love God in a authentic way. It wasn't even just going through the motions, but we did. We, uh, we attended church regularly, we studied the Bible, we taught the Bible, we memorized scripture and so on. So when Bray died, my faith and my mothering were on trial. We had fallen into the mistake of believing that when you're doing things right, trying to do the right thing, be good people, that the bad things don't happen to good people. Suicide death, perhaps more than any, more than other kinds of loss, elicit a lot of guilt. I needed, I learned early on uh, that my grief process would be separating out mothering and faith from mental illness and suicidal ideation as a cause for his decision, for his decision to die, to kill himself, to blame mothering. Looking back, both my mom and my dad had channeled all their energy into doing everything right. The way had been set out before them and they had followed it, but it had not worked. Nothing, not the careful parenting, the psychiatrists, the counselors, the meds, had worked to save their son from his mental illness and suicidal ideations. Rebellion had never been an option for my mom, but now it was the only thing left. She remembers going for runs and literally yelling at God. I would go out for a run and I was yelling at God. If you can't tell Bray that I love him, that I'm sorry, and that I miss him, then if you can't give that to me, I want nothing from you. Nothing to do with you, God. And that was the mother, that's Emily's mother, Jill. And this suicide, well, it shattered the family and shattered, well, at least the mom's faith and faith in her own mothering capabilities and capacities. And by the way, suicide is a subject we've touched on before and will continue to because it, it haunts and hurts so many people. So many people are affected by this. There probably aren't many families in America who haven't in some way experienced this. When we come back, Jill and Emily Barnum's story, coming to terms with their brother and son's death by suicide in 2013, Braden, here on Our American Stories.
And we're back with the story of Jill Barnum here on Our American Stories, the mother of Emily Barnum, who's a student at Hillsdale College, a young woman I met while teaching there this past year. When we last heard from her, Jill was doubting her faith in the midst of losing her own son to suicide. Here's the mom, here's Jill. As time went on, my anger and really my hatred, hatred of myself, hatred of my family, hatred of my background, um, just grew and uh, carried around an an enormous sense of failure. Um, My thoughts became circular and destructive. obsessing about what I could have done differently or how I could have helped Bray. But there must have been something in there um, in me that knew that I needed to do something different. So I began planning this trip into the woods. The way out of consuming bitterness first emerged in the form of a trail map, which my mom found in a sporting goods store. I don't know why I went into that sporting goods store, but once there, I found my way to a, a map rack and a map for the Jordan River Valley um, got my attention. And I recognized it as a backpacking trip um, in northern Michigan, just several hours from where I live. And I remember that I just almost automatically decided that is something I'm going to do. That is something I'm gonna make happen. And I've, I've never backpacked before. So, yeah, it just became something new to be consumed with other than grief and anger. For my mom, backpacking became a way of replacing the negative thoughts. My mom understood that there was no way to undo what had happened, Braden ending his life and any role she had played in that. But she knew that her obsessive thoughts were not in service to pursuing the truest and fairest narrative. Out on the trail, my mom fell into prayer. This kind of prayer was very meditative and repetitious. It corresponded with what she was actually physically doing, uh, walking and walking and walking. She was out in the middle of nowhere, Michigan, with just a pack and a journal, her thoughts, and God. So as my foot, my boot, hit the trail, I paired each footfall with a phrase. I'm sorry, I love you, I miss you. I'm sorry, I love you, I miss you. And walking became very methodical, very meditative. Uh, With each click of my pole, each footfall, the squeaking of my backpack. I love the sound of a squeaking backpack. But the circular and angry thoughts were becoming less and less prevalent. And I was becoming more peaceful out on the trail. It was the first anniversary of her son's death when my mom came back from the trail and the reality had not changed. She was still mourning the loss of her son and would be in some way for the rest of her life. 
but she had found a tangible way to help herself move forward. Somewhere in this process, my mom began accompanying my dad and me to a new church where there was a fresh message of love and grace. I went off to college, but when I came back to visit, my mom was attending a church book group. This was when she encountered the prayer which was to become her personal theology of grief. It was tucked away in one of the group's readings on Celtic spirituality. The church was preparing to go on a pilgrimage to Scotland, to Iona, Scotland, and so we were, we were reading through um, some material on Celtic spirituality, and my eyes fell on that middle stanza. If it be your perfect will, will you tell them how much we love them and miss them? I immediately recognized in that stanza the same ideas, the same instinct of what I wanted to say to God, that I was yelling on the road as I ran down the road, and the same thing that I was repetitively um, saying in a mantra and a prayer on the hiking trail. And here it was in this published official prayer written by a ordained pastor from another land, from another part of the world. And I was so relieved. I don't think I was looking for affirmation, but I was so relieved to see that somebody else had the same instinct and that he was respectful and legit. <laughs> so it, it was just affirming and that's where I started. That was the beginning of making this prayer my own. If it be thy holy will, please tell them how much we love them, how much we miss them, how much we long to see them again. The next time my mom went into the woods, her journal had this prayer written inside the front cover. She had walked and prayed, and as she did so, the prayer became a part of who she was. My mom was trailing miles, but the real feat was the quiet and steady healing of her spirit. This prayer offered a way for my mom to love Braden now, first because it allowed her to say what she wished she could have said more often when he was alive but it also invited her to do something after what felt like a million missed chances. If I could go back, I would have been more, I would be more comforting for Bray. I would have hugged him more, of course tell him that I loved him, and just listen more. His suffering for me was an indictment of my, my mothering or our parenting, and there was something something selfish about that because I made it about myself sometimes, but I don't know if anything would have been different. And that's a question I'll never be able to answer, of course. But I do know that I wish I'd been more comforting. After the second stanza, my mom entered the theology of the prayer laid out in the first stanza. Be thou triune God in our midst, as we give thanks for those who are gone from earthly eyes. For they in thy near presence continue to worship you in the mystery that is one family in heaven and on earth. I struggled to pray into and believe that first stanza. 
because it implies in family and friends, church or biological, harmony and connectedness. And I did not have capacity for harmony and connectedness. So as I worked to become more emotionally healthy and I healed that first stanza, became easier to pray. As my mom continued to move forward in her healing, she moved beyond the first and middle stanzas of the prayer to the last, which encouraged her to love Bray now through loving the part of the one family still on earth. Strengthen us to go on in loving service of all thy children. The, the middle stanza that drew me in was comforting. The first stanza was teaching me to forgive. And so then when I moved on to the final stanza, strengthen us to go on, it was teaching me how to go on living. I don't know if I was doing any more different serving than I've ever done before, but the activities I did to connect with and love other people were dedicated and still are dedicated to Bray. I really do believe that. As we serve, we're closer to God. And in being closer to God, we're closer to our loved ones. And a special thanks to Jill Barnum for telling her story. It's a tough one to tell when a son commits suicide. And a special thanks to Emily Barnum, the daughter who really wanted this to happen and really serving her mom. And what a triumph this story was of, of forgiveness over grief. And in the end, a path back to God and to family. By the way, I'm sorry, I love you, and I miss you. Well, those, those three sentences can't be stated enough in your life. If we learned anything from this story, that's it. If I could go back, Jill said, I'd be more comforting. I'd just listen more. Braden's suffering was an indictment of my parenting. And that was selfish because that was about me. What I do wish in the end is that I was more comforting. The Barnum Family Story, here on Our American Story. stories and we do a lot of stories here about very well-known high-profile figures and also ordinary stories from ordinary folks from around the country and often high-profile figures have people behind the scenes that have life stories that are equally as interesting and important as theirs Annie Glenn whose high-profile life as the wife of astronaut John Glenn the astronaut and senator came an inspiration to many who, like her, were chronic stutterers. Annie said she first became self-conscious about her stuttering in the sixth grade. Quote, I got up to give a poem and one of the kids laughed and I thought, uh-oh, I'm not like anybody else in this room. I think I was the only stutterer in town at the time, she added. But in 1973, in her 50s, she decided to address her stuttering by immersing herself in an intensive 
three-week fluency shaping program. Quote, those three weeks, we weren't allowed at all to see our family or to call or anything, she said. When I called John at the program's end, she added, he cried. She and her childhood playmate John Glenn married in 1943, the same year that he was commissioned in the Marine Corps. As her husband became an American hero, Annie Glenn was seen but not necessarily heard. Here's Annie Glenn speaking to disabled Americans, and this was captured by C-SPAN on July 18, 1984. I uh, want to thank you very much for asking me to speak. I'm not going to talk long. I would like to read. I am doing something now that is very hard for me. I am talking without notes. You do things that is very hard for you. It's important to try, isn't it? I think we all understand each other. And Although I am proud to be the wife of John Glenn, let me say on the outset that, have, that I have not come here this morning as the wife of a, of, of a United States Senator. I do not profess to be an expert on, on this subject, nor am I a professional. And I, I, but I do know that the most important part of our nation is the people. And I know that far too often disabled Americans are still denied the opportunities they need to become full-fledged members of our community. And when that happens, it is not just the handicapped who suffer. In a larger sense, we all do, because we lose the contribution these people, you people, all of us, could otherwise make to our cities, and our states, and in our society. What I do know about this subject comes from personal experience. I have seen it, I have experienced it, and for nearly 60 years of my life, I have lived with it. I grew up as an 85% stutterer. I don't know how many in this room are stutterers. But that means when I open up my mouth to speak, 85% of the time I was unable to. In fact, until recently, I dreaded the prospect of having to talk. Those days, a simple telephone call, I was literally impossible able to talk. My children, my husband, would make my telephone calls. In those days, a parent-teacher conference, a visit to the doctor with my children, a trip to the store where I hunted, I couldn't ask, I hunted. Sometimes I would leave the store without what I was after. <laughs> a casual uh, gathering with my friends to carry on a person-to-person -person conversation, I could not do that without terrible, terrible long time. And even during one of the greatest moments in my life, John's orbital flight, 
I was frustrated beyond expression because I could not talk. I could not share my feelings with the world, but I knew I could not tell them. But I was one of those lucky ones. After years of frustrations and failures, after years of trying many different therapists and many different kinds of therapy, I finally found a program that works. You work and work and work so hard. I can see here. Keep it up. You're out here, aren't you? Good. <laughs> but I want to emphasize that it does not come cheaply. In fact, it was expensive. Very expensive. Fortunately, we were able to afford it. And we were able to meet the price, but most people are not able to meet that price. It means so much to me to be able to do any part that I can. I have talked to all kinds of the handicapped. Anyone that I see in a wheelchair, I tap them on the shoulder. I ask them why. We really have an empathy and we really can talk and feel and it's very special for me to come here to be able to talk to all of you just for a short time. I would love to talk with you all day and exchange ideas. But as I close, Robert Kennedy once reminded us, only by making equal opportunity a reality for all Americans, for all Americans, can we make it a certainty for each American? Don't feel sorry for us. Don't count us out. Please include us. We want to be a part of this society. No matter how hard it is on us, I know the energy that you all have to put forth. I know that you want to be a part of this, this society. We don't want them to feel sorry. So God bless all of you, and please keep it up, because I expect to be helping, too. Thank you very, very much. And you're listening to Annie Gwen, And my goodness, what a fighter for folks with disabilities. She served on the advisory boards of numerous child abuse and speech and hearing organizations. She fought her condition and for broad public understanding of stuttering, for the idea that stutterers weren't merely shy, weren't unintelligent, weren't social pariahs. And I know a lot about this. My dad was a chronic stutterer right through high school. He was a star athlete. And anytime more than one or two people were around, he would just get scared and frightened. And then he would stutter, and then people would laugh, and then he'd beat him up. And my mom knew him well, and he'd spend time with him one-on-one. -on -one, so she knew he could talk. And she knew it was not because he was stupid or any of the things Annie said. And through some real love and some real persistence, my dad overcame that stuttering and became a teacher. He became an educator. Go figure. So this is dear to our, our family's heart. In 1982, a reporter asked John Glenn whether marrying someone with such a severe stutter had given him pause. Quote, that never really made any difference to me, he said. I don't know. Maybe it was just that we grew up together with it and I knew the person she was. 
and loved the person she was, and that was that. Annie Glenn died on Tuesday, May 19, 2020, at a nursing home near St. Paul, Minnesota. She was 100 years old. And by the way, President Bush, then that's the first President Bush, signed the Americans with Disabilities Act on July 26, 1990, and allowed all of us to see people with disabilities differently and make sure that all people with disabilities had equal rights, equal access to work and to school. Andy Glenn's story here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories. And as you know, we tell stories about everything here. But our very favorite stories, well, they come from our nation's warriors. And on the 5th of December in 2012, Afghan Taliban fighters known for killing and kidnapping for ransom got their hands on an American civilian doctor working with an aid organization. U.S. intelligence zeroed in on where Dr. Joseph was being held and a rescue team was soon on the way. Helicopters inserted the SEALs into the mountainous region, and the men hiked for more than four hours in the dark to reach their target. For what happened next, then-senior Chief Edward C. Byers, Jr. would earn our nation's highest award for valor, the Medal of Honor. Here is the citation. The President of the United States, in the name of the Congress, has taken pleasure in awarding the Medal of Honor to Chief Special Warfare Operator C. Air Land, Edward C. Byers, Jr., for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty as a hostage rescue force team member in Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom from 8 to 9, December 2012. As the rescue force approached the target building, an enemy sentry detected them and darted inside to alert his fellow captors. The sentry quickly reemerged, and the lead assaulter attempted to neutralize him. Chief Byers, with his team, sprinted to the door of the target building. As the primary breacher, Chief Byers stood in the doorway fully exposed to enemy fire while ripping down six layers of heavy blankets fastened to the inside ceiling and walls to clear a path for the rescue force. The first assaulter pushed his way through the blankets and was mortally wounded by enemy small arms fire from within. Chief Byers, completely aware of the imminent threat, fearlessly rushed into the room and engaged an enemy guard aiming an AK-47 at him. He then tackled another adult male who had darted towards the corner of the room. During the ensuing hand-to-hand struggle, Chief Byers confirmed the man was not the hostage and engaged him. 
As other rescue team members called out to the hostage, Chief Byers heard a voice respond in English and raced toward it. He jumped atop the American hostage and shielded him from the high volume of fire within the small room. While covering the hostage with his body, Chief Byers immobilized another guard with his bare hands and restrained the guard until a teammate could eliminate him. His bold and decisive actions under fire saved the lives of the hostage and several of his teammates. By his undaunted courage, intrepid fighting spirit, and unwavering devotion to duty in the face of near certain death, Chief Petty Officer Byers reflected great credit upon himself and upheld the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. That first American assaulter who was mortally wounded was 28-year-old Nick Check. After making sure that all the hostiles were down and the American hostage was safe, Chief Byers tried desperately to resuscitate his brother both on the ground and throughout their 40-minute-long flight back to their base. Check was posthumously awarded our nation's second-highest award for valor, the Navy Cross. And Chief Byers, as you heard, earned the Medal of Honor. Here is Chief Byers, who, by the way, remained on active duty, addressing a crowd gathered to induct him into the Pentagon's Hall of Heroes. Good afternoon, everyone. I've realized throughout my life that time is the most precious commodity you have, and I sincerely thank you all for your time today. I will speak just long enough to give credit and recognition to the heroes in my life and to those who deserve to know that they are the reason that I'm standing here today. Those heroes are my family, my faith, and the brotherhood. Family is the reason I'm able to do this job, and it's also the reason to live and to return home safely. Madison, my incredible wife, Hannah, my beautiful daughter, this could not have been possible without your resiliency and love. Your strength in my absence is something I've always admired and respected. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. I will never forget how each time I returned home from long times away, you'd be waiting to pick me up, sometimes in the middle of the night, waiting to give me a hug and a kiss, especially you, Hannah. I would not be the man I am if it were not for the two of you. You are my heroes. I love you. Hand in hand with my family is my faith. While it has had a more quiet aspect of my life, it has always played a significant role. I grew up Catholic and continue to grow in my faith, thanks especially to my brother, Trevor. He taught me to turn my heart and soul towards Christ when I have strayed or lost my way. Prayer has always provided calm amidst chaos for me. On my first deployment to Iraq some 11 years ago, I arrived in country and I saw another seal standing there with him, St. Michael the Archangel patch on his shoulder. I'm not sure what drew me to it, but I walked up to him and asked him if I could have it. He was leaving the combat zone and made it through a safe deployment. He handed it to me without hesitation. I've worn a patch on my kit on every single mission I've ever been a part of. And I prayed the St. Michael prayer while moving in the toughest missions I've faced. And it does start by saying, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection. On that day in December 2012, 
The day you heard recounted several times about my team and the way we carried out the mission to rescue American hostage. On that day, just like every day, I prayed. I prayed on the way to my target. And again, I prayed over my brother, Nicholas Check, for his soul as he gave his life to save another American. Nick Check was a warrior, a brother and a friend. I know I said this repeatedly since this has started, but this award is inseparable from his death. Nick embodied the brotherhood. Nick embodied what it meant to be a Navy SEAL. He was hard as nails, resilient. He had a never quit, never fail mentality. Nick, along with the rest of our team, carried out some of the most difficult and dangerous missions our nation could have asked us to do. Nicholas Check paid the ultimate sacrifice, doing what he loved on the battlefield because this is what brothers do. They will lay down your life for you if they have to. We are again reminded this morning of the continued sacrifices the men and women of our nation make. The hotel where many of our sustain overlooks Washington, D.C., the Pentagon, and Arlington National Cemetery. I, along with many of my teammates, have been to many funerals at Arlington, probably more than we should at our age and our life. We've seen too many good men buried. So many may ask, what is it that keeps you going? How are you standing here after such loss? The answer is, undoubtedly, without question, the brotherhood. I saved the brotherhood for last. I want to emphasize that I'm no different than any one of my teammates. I'm certain that any one of them would have taken the same exact actions I did that day. I've seen countless heroics acts in my time working with the nation's most elite operators. I feel a sense of responsibility with the recognition that has been bestowed upon me. My brothers who are still fighting, who are still in the shadows, deserve to share the spotlight where we are a community of quiet professionals and those men would not expect or seek recognition for their actions. I proudly wear this trident to represent the brotherhood. And now I've been welcomed into another group of exceptional military heroes. I look at the names in the hall of heroes and to the brave men right in front of me here and realize the tremendous amount of bravery that flows through our American veins. Freedom is in large part paid by blood, sweat, and tears. I've never imagined my life would lead me here. I'm truly humbled and honored to represent the Navy and the Naval Special Warfare community. My only desire is that my representation is something my brothers who I serve with would be proud of. Because the deed is all, not the glory. May God bless you, and may St. Michael the Archangel protect our warriors in battle, along with the Brotherhood. Thank you. And you were listening to Navy SEAL Master Chief Edward Byers, Jr. And that's what our fighting men sound like. The humility, it's there, you can hear it. He doesn't even want to be there. He really doesn't. He has to be, because it's an order. But he knows that he doesn't act alone. And the Brotherhood is the reason. Talk to any of these guys. It's more than country, actually. You really get to know them. Obviously, they love their country. But what they do and why they do it, it's because their brother would have done it, too. 
And it's why we always cry when we hear these stories. The deed is all, not the glory. And we could say that every day before we start the day, and we'd all have better lives. Especially in this Instagram, Facebook fame culture. It's so empty, and we all know it. Navy SEAL Master Chief Edward Byers' story, every soldier's story, here on Our American Story. is our American stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between including your stories send them to ouramericannetwork.org they're some of our favorites and we especially love bringing you stories about family businesses and today we bring you one with a long history that begins with a fruit cart in 1859 here is Alex Castle the master distiller at Old Dominic Distillery, to tell us the history of this Memphis family business. So one of the best things to me about working for Old Dominic and Decanale and Company is the history of it. That history dates back to 1866 and it is very tangible history. That whole family held on to so many documents and ledger books and letters. I don't know what they were thinking when they held on to it all, but I know we're, we're very happy that it's there now. The family history isn't just some story that's been passed down by word of mouth. It is a history that is very, very real uh, and that we can show to everyone just how authentic that story is and to be able to be a part of such an authentic story um, and hopefully you know be a part of its its history eventually is just it's very rewarding so our founder Domenico Canale uh, was an Italian immigrant and he came over to the States in 1859 landed in New Orleans and decided to take a riverboat up to Memphis. He already had family here, his uncle had a business already. He decided to work for his uncle. That building is literally about 100 yards from the uh, current distillery. Worked for him for a couple years and decided to start his own company in 1866, at which time he founded Decanale and Company. Started off as a modest little fruit cart and he would just go up and down what is now Front Street selling fruit. Over the years, that grew, became a much bigger distribution company, started distributing beer because he had refrigerated trucks, and decided in the midst of all of that to found Old Dominic Whiskey. He did not distill his own product, but he did buy aged product barrels from other states. So we have records of barrels from Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, and he would bring them down on the railroads and uh, blend them here under the label of Old Dominic. It was actually one of the biggest whiskey brands in the southern region. 
during that time. And of course, prohibition hit. And so Old Dominic whiskey had to stop being produced. Fortunately, the other parts of the company continued on. So the fruit distribution, the beer distribution, all of that continued on through Prohibition. And sadly, Dominico did not see the repeal of Prohibition. He actually died just a few days before it was repealed. DeCanale and company continued on, just without the whiskey. Bring it up to, I guess it was the late 90s, they actually sold off the food distribution but still maintained the beer distribution that they had. And so they were the Anheuser-Busch distributor in Memphis. And then in 2010, I believe it was, they actually sold that off as well. And so they kind of had lost all of their Memphis foothold. They had other businesses, other investments, just nothing actually in Memphis. And so in 2013, when they found a bottle of Dominic Toddy, Basically, they found this bottle full, still wax sealed. And they decided to crack it open. I believe one of them actually tasted the liquid, <laughs> but had that liquid analyzed. They sent it to California to see if we could figure out what actually was in that product. Because with all of the documents that the family held on to, they never held on to the recipe for this product. Go figure. And so, with the help of a lab out in California, they learned the different components that were present in that bottle. Couldn't figure out the exact ratios or anything like that, so no specific recipe, but they were able to figure out what was in it. And then from there, we essentially reverse engineered it. And so, today's president, Chris Canale Jr., wanted to see the company get back to Memphis. Wanted more than just their headquarters to be here. He decided, this seems like a cool idea. Someone said, well, why don't you sell the brand? He said, no, this is how we get back to Memphis. And so he and his cousin, Alex Canale, decided to open up what is now Old Dominic Distillery. That construction project officially started in 2015. And that was the same year that they decided to bring on a head distiller and I was lucky enough to get a message on LinkedIn. I had nothing better to do. I said, sure, I'll come down for an interview. And ended up deciding to move to Memphis um, that same year. And so about a year of construction and we were actually ready to produce the first whiskey, not just out of Old Dominic, but the first whiskey produced in Memphis ever. There were no distilleries here even before Prohibition. Um, so December of 2016 was kind of a, a big year for Old Dominic and for Memphis. And then flash forward a couple months, May of 2017, and we were actually finished with all of construction and open to the public um, for our first tours at the beginning of May. Um, and since then we have added multiple products. We now have two vodkas. We have our Memphis toddy. We have a gin that's about to come out. And we also have our Hewling Station bourbon and even the Hewling Station line. We're about to release even more products under it. So it's been a very, very busy two, two and a half years. And again, you're listening to Alex Castle, and she's the head distiller at Old Dominic Distillery. What a thing to do and what a way to honor a family heritage. And what a way to honor a city 
by creating new jobs and, well, doing something Memphis had never done, producing whiskey. And by the way, Tennessee is a whiskey state, but Memphis was not a whiskey-producing town. And when we come back, we'll hear more of this remarkable story from head distiller Alex Castle, the story of Old Dominic Distillery, a local story. Oxford, where we broadcast, is a mere hour's drive south from the great city of Memphis. The story continues here on Our American Story. back with the story of Old Dominic Distillery in Memphis, Tennessee, and its master distiller, Alex Kessel. Alex was the first female master distiller in the state of Tennessee at the first whiskey distillery ever in Memphis. Here's Alex to tell us her story. So I am originally from Kentucky. I grew up in a small town called Burlington. It's about 12 miles south of Cincinnati, Ohio. It was definitely a type A, so when I got to high school, fell in love with maths and sciences and knew I wanted to do something with them. And I was talking to my mom, trying to figure out, you know, what could I do with my life? Because at 15, you need to know what you're gonna do with the rest of your life. And uh, she had been reading some articles and came across chemical engineering. I was like, that sounds perfect, but I can't teach, so what do you do with that? And uh, my mom, who doesn't drink, said, you can make beer and be a brewmaster, or you can be a master distiller and make bourbon. So that's perfect. That's exactly what I want to do. Truthfully, I have no idea why it sounded interesting, because I was one of those people in high school who did not drink. And like I said, my mom didn't drink. We didn't have bourbon in the house. Up to that point, my only experience with bourbon was my parents taking me to Maker's Mark when I was about five or six years old, and I hated it. Absolutely hated it. I remember my dad sticking his finger in the fermenter and eating it, and I thought I was gonna throw up. It just was so gross to me. I didn't like the smell of that room. And then, I can't remember if it was at the start of the tour or the end of the tour, but they were handing out fudge. I'm a kid. I absolutely want some fudge. No one told me it was bourbon fudge. That does not taste like fudge. It was horrible. So that being my only experience with bourbon, I really have no idea why I ended up in this industry. But when I was 15 or 16, that just, it sounded so perfect. And being from Kentucky, you know, it was a part of my heritage, even if we weren't involved in it. And so I, that's, I went to the University of Kentucky to study chemical engineering and was fortunate enough to get a co-op while I was in school with a small company not so small now, but small company in Lexington called Alltech. And at the time they did animal nutrition supplements and had a brewery. And I thought, that's perfect, because I thought I wanted to do beer. Well, while I was there, they sneakily added two pot stills into the brewery and had no one to run them or clean them for that matter. And so my boss sent me and one other person from the engineering office to clean them because they'd come all the way from Scotland, so they had a lot of dirt on them. 
from the travel, and uh, shortly after that is when he asked me if I wanted to observe a distillation. So not just polish the stills, but you can actually help run them. And instead of observing, I actually got to run the distillation that day. My boss forgot that he had to take his kids to the dentist that day. And so I show up and he says that and I think, oh man, now I have to go to the office. This is gonna be boring. And instead, in about five minutes, ran me through the entire process and said, if you have to, just shut it down. I'll be back later, and then left. And so I ran the stills that day. Did not have to shut them down, thankfully. And I guess because I managed to do that that first day, I was cheap labor. They didn't have to hire anyone else, so they just let me do it from that point on. So I filled over the first 100 barrels, I believe, it was a Pierce Lions Reserve. And from that day on, that was all I wanted to do. I just wanted to make whiskey. And so I set off on that path and have been fortunate enough to know people in the industry and get my foot in the door and have stayed in it ever since. So after college, I, have, I did one year making laundry detergent because the industry, while it was growing, Everyone was still so new, nobody was making money, which meant they couldn't hire anybody. Um, so no one was hiring at the time. But fortunately, one of the guys I used to work with at Alltech remembered that I wanted to be in the industry and so connected me with his friend who was a recruiter and was hiring for Wild Turkey. And so I managed to get on as a distillery production supervisor at Wild Turkey about a year after I graduated college and worked there for four years. Uh, started off as the number two supervisor. Then about a month, that supervisor got shifted to a different department, so I very quickly became the number one supervisor. And so for four years, I was overseeing all of production at Wild Turkey, responsible for third shift and first shift, so the hours for that were spectacular. I woke up at 2 a.m. every day, so <laughs> definitely cut my teeth in a really good way up there. And then it was randomly the beginning of 2015 that I got that message on LinkedIn asking if I knew anyone who would be interested in a startup distillery in Memphis. And I took about two days to think about it and sent my resume in. And my first trip to Memphis was for the interview and I fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the city immediately. Uh, but also fell in love with the company. I, everyone I met during that weekend was absolutely fantastic. And then they actually brought me into the distillery, which at the time was a completely empty building. Um, the stairs were absolutely terrifying, but I went up them in heels. And, uh, but seeing the space and seeing how much work was to be done I could see the challenge that it was. And at the time, I didn't know I wanted that kind of challenge, but seeing it, having it put right in front of me, I realized that that's exactly what I needed. And so it just, the whole concept of really doing start to finish with this company and with this brand was so thrilling. Creating a new brand and product is incredibly stressful, but it was exhilarating. So just the distillery itself, because we do consider the physical space a product for us. You know, I actually got to sit in on interior design meetings. So I got to help pick tile for the bathrooms and light fixtures and I was amazed at how much I enjoyed that. And then with the products themselves, of course, had to develop the liquid, which was super fun. You know, my nerdy side came out. 
but I also got to have input on the bottles themselves, you know, the shapes, the labels, how they looked, everything. I got input on all of it. Um, whereas, you know, where I came from, I had no say in any of that. I would never have say in any of that. Um, and so to be able to put my stamp on every aspect of the product and the brand, it was incredibly rewarding. So yeah, I'm fortunate to have owners who really do um, trust their employees, put faith in their employees. If they hired you to do something, they're gonna do everything they can to, to make sure they let you do that job. Um, and like on a personal level, it's great. I actually do get along with them. You know, we're friends, we've gone on trips together. Um, and over the years, I think I've proven myself to them to where they've let me take more and more control um, and kind of oversee the day-to-day -day operations of the distillery. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do it. Women engineers aren't really a thing or weren't a thing when I entered college and female distillers weren't a thing at the time either. Um, so there were a lot of people who were saying that, you know, maybe, maybe go somewhere else, maybe do something else. And I ignored all of them and just pushed through. And now you see female distillers everywhere. You see women opening their own distilleries. It is fantastic. I mean, it's, it, seeing women in the industry it goes right along with just how much the industry has grown and changed in recent years. Um, you know, it used to be super labor intensive and, you know, rolling around a 500 pound barrel, not the easiest thing. Most women probably don't really want to do that. Um, but so many things are now automated that that labor aspect really isn't there. Yes, the working conditions can be very interesting. You know, you're standing in 150 degree temperatures on a regular basis. Women can put up with that just as well as men can, but women actually have better tastes, better sense of taste and better sense of smell. So if anything, we're actually more qualified to be doing this. And so it's, I love going to conferences every year and there are more and more women each year. And it is, it's fantastic to not be the only one at the table anymore. So to see everyone embracing this change in the industry, it's, it's the best time to be a part of it. And great job by Robbie on that piece, finding it and producing the piece. And a special thanks to Alex Castle. That was her voice. And my goodness, she fell in love with math and sciences at the age of 15. We just fell in love with her and listening to her story for about 10 minutes. She didn't know what to do with her life. Her mom said, chemical engineer. She didn't know what that meant, but she gave it a shot. And she had never really had much to drink in her life. Actually, didn't drink. But a summer internship at the University of Kentucky at Alltech changed her life. And we talk about that so much here on this show. The idea of young people getting out into the field and learning about their passions and learning skill sets that can, well, open up a life's vocation, as it did here, folks. And her nerdy side and her artistic side, both being fulfilled at this distillery right here, just an hour up the road from beautiful Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast the city of Memphis, Old Dominic Distillery, their story, Alex Castle's story, here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and now we come to the third part of our conversation with author, entrepreneur, and teacher, Seth Godin. He's the author of one of the most popular blogs in the world, which you can find at seths.blog, as well as 19 best-selling books, including one of my favorites, Tribes. You can find the other parts of our conversation at OurAmericanStories.com. And this third part is about building a customer base, and better yet, a tribe, around whatever creative work, product, or service that we're bringing to the world. Here's Seth with the story of how to do all of these things. So if I say to people, name a successful business, they'll name all the famous ones, all the big ones, all the ones that had a big payday. They'll name the Amazons and the Nikes, etc. But you know how many businesses are in the Fortune 500? Only 500. There are millions and millions and millions of businesses that are happier, more productive, maybe even more profitable than those 500 companies, but we don't pay attention to them because they're not in the media, they're not turned into heroes. Turns out that for most entrepreneurs, the goal should not be, how do I serve everyone? The goal should be, how do I serve someone? How do I find the smallest viable audience, the smallest group of people that can sustain me and overwhelm them, delight them, give them so much that they tell the others? Because as Kevin Kelly has pointed out, a thousand true fans is enough. There are a thousand people who will eagerly give you $100 a year. You're done. You win. If there's 10,000, it's a home run. And so as entrepreneurs, we should not get distracted by the people who are critics. We should not get distracted by the people who don't get the joke because it's not for them. And so what it means to niche down is to say, how do I make this a smaller, tighter, more important group as opposed to hiding behind big numbers? Let's give an example. Talk about Penguin Magic. Who are they? Tell their story. Penguin Magic is an online company that has solved a really interesting problem. If you want to sell magic tricks, there are two kinds of people you can sell them to. You can sell them to professional magicians or to amateurs, hobbyists, actually. Professional magicians don't need any more tricks. They do the same 15 tricks every night because they've mastered them and the audience keeps changing. But hobbyist magicians keep doing the same tricks for the same people, and they're boring themselves to death. They need new tricks all the time. So Penguin said, how do we find a group of hobbyist magicians and create a place where they can go and see the next trick? Of course, we won't tell them how it's done until they buy it. And so day after day, week after week, Penguin builds a bridge, a bridge between hobbyist magicians who are thirsty for the next trick and the people who know how to create tricks who are thirsty for an audience. This business is unknown to everyone else. This business is profitable. It does millions of dollars a year in revenue. It advances the craft dramatically. The stuff that they sell, 20 years ago, you couldn't buy it from anyone. But what they have done is found the smallest viable audience, brought them something, a story, that they needed and wanted to hear. They don't have to shout They don't have to grab attention, and they have earned trust. That's all they do, and that's enough. Talk about the Grateful Dead. Well, we could talk about the Grateful Dead forever because if the Grateful Dead hadn't existed, we would need to invent them to prove that everything we are talking about here is true and can work. 
For 10 years, the Grateful Dead were the number one touring band in North America, more than the Rolling Stones, more than anybody else. How did they do this? They only had one top 40 hit their entire career. And that one hit almost ruined them as a band because it brought a whole bunch of new people to the concerts who they didn't want to have come. The concerts weren't the way you could hear the music. You got to hear the music for free from people who were sharing tapes. That's not why you went. You went because the other people were there. And so what the dead were doing were putting on a rolling party for a small group of people who could only get the connection that they offered by going to a dead show. The dead created a culture. The dead found the smallest viable audience that you needed to become rock stars, even though most people never heard them. They weren't often played on the radio. They were in a different line of work. And what Jerry and the rest of the band got to do is the work they wanted to do, the work of artists, the work of passion, as opposed to pleasing somebody at a record label who wanted them to be more normal. And so none of us will ever be as big a cultural force as the dead were in their time. But what they show us is a model that the Internet makes acting like the Grateful Dead a hundred times easier than it used to be. That what we get to do is find the others, connect the others, lead the others, do work that people would miss if it were gone. And for years and years, I had a bumper sticker on my car that said, I miss Jerry. And almost no one knew what it meant. But when someone who did know what it meant passed by, there was always a wave and a smile. Because even though Jerry's long gone, he is still connecting the people who want to be connected. Let's talk about Stone Age economics. Um, it's a book you cite quite a number of times. The man who wrote it was an anthropologist. How does that equate to folks out there listening who own or are starting or are in the middle of putting out a business? So Marshall Salins revolutionized anthropology. Most people don't know what anthropology is. They took one course in it in college that wasn't very good. Anthropology means how do we explain culture? How do we explain how this got the way it got? And his breakthrough when he was a young man, he's still writing today, but the book we're talking about was what exactly was it like to be a caveman? What was it like to be a hunter-gatherer? Because in our minds, as sold by the industrialists, what it was like was brutish, evil, short, dark. Uh, you, you were going to get eaten by a dinosaur or clubbed over the head, and it wasn't very fun. But his research showed that hunter-gatherers, including tribes as recently as just a few decades ago, work just a few hours a day to feed themselves and spend the rest of their time in community, the rest of their time building culture. And unlike squirrels or sparrows or earthworms, human beings build culture. That our culture is fundamentally different than it was 300 years ago. You cannot say that for any other animal. That building culture is what we want to do more than anything else. So if you want to be an entrepreneur, well, one way to do it is to figure out the cheapest way to solve a problem and get paid for it. The end. But the best way to do it is to build culture, to find a group of people and establish that people like us do things like this. Because people like us do things like this is the essence of culture, and the people who get to make that sentence tend to be people who have chosen to lead. And you've been listening to Seth Godin. And my goodness, go to ouramericanstories.com and listen to our entire series. 
you won't get better storytelling and insight into knowing your own story, knowing your business's story, and knowing the story of others. And the intersection of all three is so fascinating. And that idea of niching down, of not trying to please everybody, but just trying to get the product down, the service down, to the smallest number of people to start and create raving fans. And that you don't need a ton of those, not millions and tens of millions, to do well. And that insight into the Grateful Dead, my goodness, it's just so true. Fan, not a fan, doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is that if you can tour around this country and beat the likes of Bruce Springsteen and Metallica and the Rolling Stones and be number one in 10 straight years, what you have, well, you've created a culture, a culture that fans come to and get satisfied by the product and by, most importantly, the experience. You've been listening to Seth Godin. He has one of the most popular blogs in the world, which you can find at seths.blog. My goodness, 19 best-selling books, including The Dip, Lynchpin, Purple Cow, and Tribes, my favorite, and What to Do When It's Your Turn, and It's Always Your Turn. And by the way, he also has an MBA for those of you who want to learn about leadership in any category of life that you're embarked on. AltMBA.com is tight, it's short, it's smart, and you'll learn a lot by doing. Go to AltMBA.com. Seth Godin's story and his insights on so much about life here on Our American Stories. Continue with our American stories, and now a story from one of our regular contributors, Bert Rossica. In 2012, for reasons known only to Providence, I decided to type a list of the reasons why a manual typewriter is better than a computer. My intent when I started was to come up with 99 reasons. The reason I settled on 99 was because back in 1985, Tom Boswell, who was then the beat reporter for baseball for the Washington Post, was given an assignment by his editor to come up with the 99 reasons why baseball is better than football. And as he tells the story, he comes into the office at 9 in the morning and his editor tells him he needs on his desk by 12 o'clock, at least 99 reasons. Boswell goes back to his office a little anxious that he may or may not be able to accomplish the task in the time allotted, and proceeds to write on his typewriter. According to him, it took him 45 minutes to complete the task. And it became an instant classic and part of the pantheon of baseball. The reason I had a newfound appreciation for the typewriter had to do with the fact that our then 12-year-old son shows up one day with a typewriter. I asked him, 
why in the world did you buy a typewriter? And he told me, I always wanted one, Dad. I thought, all right. He got the typewriter at a thrift store in our town. And the reason he was at the thrift store was because at the age of 12, he decided he did not want to attend the cotillion at his school wearing khaki color chinos. He wanted to wear Nantucket red colored chinos. And I told my wife, I don't feel like spending like $100 at Brooks Brothers or Nordstrom's or some other place for a kid to wear Nantucket red chinos for six months and then grow out of them. So I said, take him to the thrift store. So he came back from the thrift store without the chinos, but with the typewriter. So, I said, what did you pay for it? $15, Dad. $15 for a typewriter, okay. The guy wanted 30, Dad, but I told him it didn't work, so I'd only give him 15. I tried to get it for 10, but he insisted on 15. The kid's 12 years old, negotiating with the thrift store manager or owner or whatever he was. So he has this $15 typewriter that doesn't work. Why'd you get a typewriter if it doesn't work? He said, I figured you could fix it, Dad. I said, all right, it's a reasonable answer. Let's take it down to the bench and see what we can do. So I take it down to my workbench. Finally, we get the thing working. Well, we proceed to then argue over who gets to use the typewriter. I wanted to use it. He didn't want to let me. I argued, I fixed it. He argued, I paid for it. Why don't you get your own typewriter? So I did. Then I got another, and then another, and then another. And the next thing I know, I'm collecting and restoring old manual typewriters. And I started writing. And in the process of that, I realized writing on a typewriter is way more enjoyable than writing on a computer. One day I'm typing away on the typewriter, writing heaven knows what. And I'm thinking, this is great. I also start thinking about the Boswell list. So what if I can come up with 99 reasons why a typewriter is better than a computer? So, put a piece of paper in the typewriter, and I started to type. And here's what I came up with. I'm going to go through the list. Some of them are a little redundant. In fact, I think some are absolutely redundant. Now, for those of you who have never typed on a typewriter, you're just going to have to use your imagination. And for those of us old enough to have typed on a typewriter, I think some of these things might strike a chord. Speaking of which, the number one reason is there are no power chords. Two, no chords connecting to a printer. Three, no cords connecting to an external hard drive. Four, no cords connecting to anything. Five, no software to install. Six, no software to download. Ten, the typewriter can't crash. Eleven, no fatal system error messages. Twenty-four, no font to choose. 25, 
no font color to choose unless you have a two-tone ribbon. 26. No font size to choose. 27. You don't have to format your font. 29. No print button to push. 33. No leaving your desk to retrieve your printed work. 34. The typewriter can reflect your mood. If you are upset and you type harder as a result, it will show in your work because the keys will penetrate the paper. 39. I like baseball. Shirley Povich used the typewriter. Need I say more? Forty. There is no chance what you type will be uploaded inadvertently to the internet for all the world to see whether you wanted to or not. Typewriters are secure and private. 41. There is no spell check. You need to learn how to spell and use a dictionary. In the process, you will improve your vocabulary. 42. There is no grammar check. Read Strunk and White and learn how to use it. You will improve your grammar. 43. No annoying perforated red underlines telling you something is misspelled. 44. No annoying perforated green underlines telling you something isn't punctuated properly. They are not always correct anyway. 51. If you are working late and happen to fall asleep at the keyboard with one of your fingers pressing against the key, you won't wake up later to discover that you have just typed 2,359 pages of the letter K. Fifty-three, no mouse. Fifty-six, you don't get interrupted with emails. Fifty-seven, no one tries to friend you. Sixty-seven, when I'm working on my typewriter, it can't be confused with playing solitaire or shopping on the web. Seventy-one, when I type, I am not distracted by all the other things on a computer that are ultimately less fulfilling. 72. Most of the good old typewriters were made in America. 77. There are no gamers on typewriters. 78. If a typewriter breaks, they rarely, if ever, do. You take it to some old guy that has interesting stories to tell, rather than some young kid that doesn't know anything. You may not know it, but you probably have more in common with that old guy, even if you're not old. 79. You don't need extended warranties. You can't get them anyway. 83. If someone sees you or hears you typing on a typewriter, they will stop and ask you about it, and you will have something interesting to discuss. No one ever asks me about my computer. 91. If I want to quote-unquote carbon copy someone, I get to use real carbon paper. 92. Now my kids can learn what real carbon paper is and why they CC someone. 93. 
another personal one. I now have a use for those three bottles of whiteout I have been saving in my desk for so many years. 99. You never have to reboot your typewriter. And what a terrific piece by Bert Rossica. 99 reasons why a typewriter is better than a computer. I still have one. I don't use it. But my dad still does. He types everything up on little cards. When I get a birthday card, the the envelope is typed. He is still hacking away at the typewriter and loves it. And by the way, I really do remember that Tom Boswell piece in the Washington Post. It is dazzling. And that's 99 reasons why baseball is better than football. And we got to call Tom and see if he can do that. It was written many years ago. But my goodness, it still stands. By the way, one of my favorites on our show, Mike Levin, who is the COO and the president of Las Vegas Sands, ran Holiday Inn Express, a great hotel guy in the business for 50-plus years and a legend. He sent us 54 things I learned in 54 years. If you have a story, a list, send it to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Bert Rossica's 99 Reasons Why a Typewriter is Better Than a Computer here on Our American Stories. 